one of my kind of key criteria is how easily would this be gained by affluent families? I think like we really need to keep, people don't take that seriously enough. One of your key criteria with any assessment system is how easily can advantaged families game this system? Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, you beautiful beasts, and welcome to episode 36 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Today, I am joined by John Hutchinson, the Head of Training and Development at the REACH Foundation. And what's the REACH Foundation, I hear you ask? Well, I'll tell you. The REACH Foundation is a charity that's attached to the REACH Academy in Feltham, West London, which is involved in all kinds of interesting things, one of which is expanding the role of schools into the wider community through something called a cradle to career model, which is a fascinating example, I think, of rethinking education in action and is something that I discussed at length with John. But we started our conversation by speaking kind of accidentally about things that we disagree on. And so if agreeable disagreement is your thing, you should find plenty to chew over here. Prior to this, John was an assistant headteacher at the REACH Academy, and he's taken part in expert panels for the Department for Education, for Ofsted, and for the Standards and Training Agency, and he was also involved in the recent development of the Early Career Framework, if I recall correctly. For the last 10 years or so, John has been deeply involved in developing a knowledge-based curriculum at Key Stage 2, which for our international listeners is when the kids are aged sort of between about 7 and 11. Harking back to my recent conversation with Professor Michael Young, John describes this project as designing and creating resources and approaches that give every child access to the powerful knowledge they need to flourish, whilst reducing teacher workload and improving subject knowledge across the curriculum. On which topic more to follow? But before we get into all that, it is incumbent upon me to draw your attention to the Rethinking Education Conference, which will be at Addy and Stanhope School on Saturday the 17th of September this year, 2022, for those of you in the future. Speaker applications are now open, online or face-to-face, and we're running a 20% discount for friends of the podcast. Just enter R-E-P-O-D 20, Repod 20, all lowercase, into the little promo box. On the page where you pay, look for small blue font writing at the top of the page where you enter your promo code. There are also links in the show notes where you can join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the now 500 strong and growing by the day global community that's grown up around this podcast. At the moment, we're having monthly Zoom calls in which we seek to backward design edutopia, which is a lot more fun than it sounds. If you enjoy these conversations 10% as much as I do and would like to share your appreciation in some way, you can either become a patron of the podcast, there are various benefits associated with doing so, or you can buy me a coffee if you feel so inclined. There are links in the show notes. It's also always greatly appreciated when people write nice things about the podcast, giving it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're using and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. So please do that if you can. Okay, I'll now hand over to my recent agreeably disagreeable conversation with John Hutchinson. I hope you enjoy the show. John Hutchinson, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Long time listener, first time be on the podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. We met once, do you remember very briefly, we met in a pub in Cambridge 
uh, I think it was after like a, a research ed, um, like a mini research ed event. I think we, and I, and I think I later on realized that that pub was the, the Watson and Crick pub. It was the Eagle. It was like, which I didn't realize until years later. And I was like, oh, I've been here before. So there you go. But we only met very briefly that day. So it's going to be nice to sit down with you and to, uh, to exchange some views. In, in decades to come, they, they won't call it the Watson and Crick pub. They'll call it the Hutchinson and Manion pub. <laughs> <laughs> it's surely only a matter of time. So I'm looking forward to this conversation for a number of reasons. One of them being that we disagree on some stuff, which is always fun. Or maybe we, ha we have diverging views, perhaps. Um, which is maybe it's not always fun on Twitter. It can be quite terrifying, frankly, can't it? But uh, it's interesting to to explore um, where people diverge in their views. Um, and I know that you like to look at things from all angles. And there was a there was a blog that you wrote a while ago now, um, which was about the knowledge rich curriculum, and it was three arguments against a knowledge rich curriculum and why you think they're wrong. And I thought it was just brilliant, you know, and, and it was always formed the basis of a chapter that I wrote in the, the book that I wrote about learning to learn with Kate McAllister, um, in which we put learning to learn on trial. And I used that same sort of format that you used in that blog, like three arguments, what are the three best arguments against learning to learn? And why do we, you know, what's the defense against those things? And I think it was the most interesting chapter in that book. Um, and so thank you for that. <laughs> I, I really, enjoy, I thoroughly enjoyed that chapter. And, and it felt um, as somebody um, who, who's potentially going, and you very kindly sent me a manuscript of the of, of the book. And I think it's uh, because you knew that there were going to be bits in there that, that I disagreed with potentially. And I think when you're going into, you know, um, first of all, I think it's good practice to, to try and read stuff with an open mind that you that you that you disagree with. There's that Aristotle quote of the the mark of an the mark of an educated mind is um, the ability to entertain an idea without accepting it. Um, and, and and I like that idea of like genuinely open mindedly sort of humbly thinking maybe I am wrong about all of this stuff. <laughs> and and what would it take for me to be wrong about all of this stuff? But the second thing is I I, I think that that, that there's also um, I think that very often there is far less clear water between people's positions, even when that seems superficially to be the case. And I, and I remember speaking to, um, uh, well, in fact, on several occasions, I've spoken to people who I seem to sort of like be be quite quite opposed to on, on, on Twitter or in terms of writing about education or whatever it is. And then I'll meet them in, in real life and we'll talk about the sorts of things that we do in the classroom and the sort of things that we that we value in the classroom. And and I think, do you know what? I think that we probably teach in a very, very similar way. I think we probably set up our classrooms in a very, very similar way. I think we expect very similar things from our kids. Um, and so that speaks to me about the just just being, I think, a bit a bit more honest and open about about why potentially you are placing more emphasis on on particular things and i think it's very often that it's, it's emphasis as opposed to exclusion um I, I think that there are very few people who think that um you should never do some explicit instruction in a lesson um and i think that there are very few people who think that the kids should never enjoy aspects of of, of learning but people emphasize different elements um and my from my perspective i think that that's because that that probably comes from a diagnosis of 
from from people's perspectives a diagnosis of what they think the problem is what's their their diagnosis of what is the problem with education uh, and that then speaks to where they emphasize particular what what should be uh, what what should be given more attention and um i know that you love to go biographical and and, and sort of talk about i guess what academics would call like the axiology of sort of like people's um, people's values and, and where they come from, and and I've thought about this for a while. Like so, so there, there's recently, for example, been been a, a rise in schools who have very very strict disciplinary processes, right? And um, I, I'm going to sort of remain uh, neutral for the moment on on sort of what I think about that. But 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 just sort of taking a step back, I think that very often when you look at the sorts of folks that set up those schools or that 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 are attracted to work in those schools you look at some of the experiences they've had they've, they've worked in schools that are just like really really tough and and sort of like often chaotic in terms of sort of behavior and so it's kind of no surprise that the conclusion that they've come to is we just need to have stricter um uh, disciplinary processes in school mm. i think that one of the problems is that when you then over extrapolate that and say all schools should therefore have these particular processes and and the the, com, the the converse of that is somebody that's perhaps worked in very leafy sort of schools where behavior management is entirely optional because kids tend to just sort of like do the right thing, and and and, and again like so saying you know I want to I want to actually get a bit more um, I, I, I want to open this up a little bit in in the classroom and maybe give the kids more control over sort of what's the what what they do maybe entirely appropriate within your particular context and it, and and it may be that that's the correct emphasis you actually want to get a little bit more sort of um uh, uh, autonomy or sort of like uh, from 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 the kids but again if you then try and over extrapolate that and say therefore you know schools shouldn't have behavior systems um that's where i think we start to run into sort of like that's where people start to, to clash horns partially because what they that what they hear is you're not hearing me you're not hearing my experience you're not hearing why i've arrived at this conclusion and that's why i think that your, the chapter in fear is the mind killer is so great because it, it eliminates that i might disagree with you but but i can't say that you haven't taken my perspective on board or it's not that you haven't it's not that you haven't understood or taken seriously the kind of counter arguments uh, and that's where it gets interesting <laughs> you have and still arrive at a different conclusion <laughs> <laughs> well yeah exactly and and i think that it also you, you said that it boils down to what you see as the problem and it's also boils down to what you see as the purpose of education and the the bottom line of that is that there is no purpose there are purposes and, and and therefore we need multiple different types of practitioners like you say in different contexts different emphases should should and are placed in different places and that's as it should be and we need to like one of the things that i have, have come to the conclusion about recently speaks to what you were just saying about how you know you go from thinking like a very no excuses behavior um, approach works in this school to saying this is what should be happening in every school um, and that's clearly where the problem is and I think that what we need is a more divergent a, a more diverse education ecosystem if you like where there's there's, there's scope for much more uh, re reflexivity and responsiveness to particular contexts and the needs of particular learners to the proclivities of particular teachers and and parents I would love to see I would love to see much more of that uh, so, uh, so I agree partially. Uh, the 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 risk I think for, for for from so the risk I think with that is that um, it it morphs into a kind of anything goes um, uh, uh, sort of like position, and and I do think it's true to say 
um, that we are arriving at an understanding of more effective and efficient ways to do stuff. Um, so whether that's, you know, introducing a new concept to pupils or um, you know, the cognitive load theory and instructional practices uh, are, are a fairly hot topic on this, but but we can we can broaden out to, to sort of like building great relationships with kids in the classroom or the way that you interact with, pa with parents, whatever it is, I, I, I agree that um, uh, a plurality is help is healthy and helpful um but but i think that part of the risk is that that it becomes a well you know do do sort of whatever do whatever you feel it's good diversity is good so so sort of do do whatever and and um i think there are occasions in terms of where the purpose is clear of i want kids to do i want kids to achieve this in this particular stage and it might be different in different stages it's likely that there are more effective or um, a more efficient sort of ways to to achieve that. Uh, and I think that for me, that's where a kind of moral imperative comes in terms of teacher autonomy doesn't doesn't trump pupil entitlement. And um, that a, a, therefore a, a teacher or a school or a leader saying, uh, you know, this is something that I really value and, 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 uh, and think is really important. Therefore, we're going to ignore or de-emphasize um, emerging evidence on the best way to do a particular thing i think that's where it can start to get risky because that's where essentially we're, we're kind of i think that's that's where it feels like we're letting down kids and and those kids who um in terms of sort of like disadvantage gaps and, and attainment gaps i think that that is felt more keenly with the pupils who have the the, the fewest safety nets in, in in the first place um i mean there are some so so a good example of this would be phonics instruction, for example. Um, it, it, part of teaching kids to read is getting them decoding fluently. It's not all of it, um, but, but part of getting them to read is a necessary but not sufficient part of getting kids to read is, is fluent decoding, automaticity in terms of decoding. And this is obviously one of the biggest arguments in education. Um, I, I think that the jury's just in, that in terms of decoding, no, I don't say reading. In terms of decoding, the most effective and efficient way to 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 get all kids, or or the the very you know barring very specific um, special educational needs or disabilities, decoding fluently is a, a systematic synthetic phonics program. Now, should a teacher or a head teacher be able to say no? We can argue about the evidence, and and uh, but let's let's for for a thought experiment. Let's imagine that the evidence is settled. Should a head teacher or a teacher be able to say, I'm aware that there's evidence that this is the best way to read, to, to learn to decode, but I don't like it. I like to read stories to my kids. I like them to explore books more holistically. I don't like the, the barking at text. I don't like them, them rabbiting all in rows, so we're not gonna do it. So, so for me, I would say you don't get, you don't get to Teachers, head teachers, don't get to make that call. Um, it, 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 it's it's not acting in the best interests of the children. It's acting in the best interests of themselves. But what if you? you this is a fascinating conversation. What if it's not the the the, the teachers' um, proclivities or their their teacher autonomy, as you put it? But what if it's parents who say, 
I, I, I don't want to force my kid to read at age three or four. I want them to, to, to teach themselves later on. And lots of parents do that. And I recently had, I don't know if you listened to a previous episode that I had with Naomi Fisher, um, who's a clinical psychologist, and she sends her children to, the, to a place called the Self-Managed Learning College in Brighton, where I used to work for a while, and her, her children self-taught. And when children self-teach to read, um, and th that's a fascinating whole area that we could get into, it ha tends to happen much later. It tends to happen around eight, nine, ten, sometimes into the teens. Um, and th that might be a choice that parents might have. And, and, but, but, you know, and, and, and through this, alongside this podcast, what's one of the things that's really interesting is this, this community has emerged alongside it. There's about 500 people in what's called a mighty network. It's sort of like a special interest social media type um, website platform. Um, and there are loads and loads of parents and carers and teachers. There are teachers who've qualified as teachers and they're like, I can't teach in a local school because none of them align with my values. And likewise with parents and carers, they're like, I don't want my kids to be doing that. And maybe phonics is not the best idea, but it's more just, you know, if we throw the net wider and just say, I don't want them to, to be in a no excuses school, or I don't want them to be in a school where they're only teaching in predetermined subject disciplines. I want my child to be able to follow their interests and passions. And, and some kids can do that very well. And I think that if we don't have the flexible responsive system, and it's a really complicated thing to pull off, because you're talking about the needs of the child, right, which are maybe in conflict with the needs of the of the, the, the teachers and, and school leaders. And often the child's needs are, and interests um, are in conflict with their own parents. And that opens up a whole new, um, you know, dimension to this debate. Uh, so it's by no means straightforward. But I also don't think that it's necessarily the case that just because something is evidence based that it should be mandated as like the thing that everybody should get as their birthright because people that people are, are so diverse that they don't they don't all go along with that you know and, and if the and if the system doesn't offer them alternatives then that's a real problem and i think that that's partly the reason that we have so many absentees from school there's about a million persistent absentees from school which has gone a lot higher post-covid but it, but pre-covid it was a million which is an astonishing number um, and about 100,000 of those miss about 50% of, of their time in school. Um, and so there are lots of kids who are voting with their feet uh, and parents who are voting with their feet because the system isn't meeting their needs. So it's a complicated conversation to have this one, but an, an, an urgent and necessary one, I would think, because it's clear that for, for a significant minority, at least, it, the, the, what, what the mainstream system has to offer is not working. I think I differentiate wants and needs here. Um, so, so what parents want, schools should take that into account, but it shouldn't be the ultimate arbiter of what they offer. Partially because with 30 different kids and 30 sets of parents or carers, they're going to want different things. And any teacher knows this because what every single year when you ask them about homework, you know that 50% of the kid kids parents say that there's too much homework and 50% say that there's too little uh, and so schools are kind of like caught in the middle constantly between what what parents sort of want and that's different to what they need so let me ask you a question James should the should the NHS should it you be should I be allowed to demand from my GP a course of homeopathic treatment for um, an, an ailment that I have 
my understanding is that you can get homeopathic stuff on the NHS. Not, n not anymore. Not, not, not since, not since twenty. I think twenty seventeen. Oh, really? There was some recent thing where it was stopped. <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm not. I, I can see where you're going with this, but I don't think that it's quite the same because in the NHS, like with, with with health, you're dealing with something that's essentially rooted in natural science. I mean, the, the, there is a the, my god, the, that's a complicated question, man. There's so many, <laughs> there's so many things flooding into my head. Um, but like in medicine, let's say you've got a tumor, right? And you and you demand to your G, for your GP, I want some like arnica ointment to deal with my tumor, and the, the doctor's like, no. But like because you've got you've got um, you know you can measure tumors, right? You can measure them with a ruler, and you can see whether they get big or smaller, and you can count the numbers of people who live and die when they take different treatments, and so it's a very different thing. To, to use as, a, as an analogy for what happens in education, because education is is very much rooted in your values and your your desires and ambitions. And, and like you say, you know, where you place emphases and what you describe as your wants and needs. And they it, it's not so black and white that, that one person's want or need is, is something that should be applied to everyone in the way that in the way that medical treatments should. Um, and, and just for, like to, so is, like, let's take an example. By the way, I wasn't planning on doing the beef, the beef up front. I wanted to, I really want to talk to you about your work with the Reach Foundation. I was gonna, I was gonna do this later, but let's have it, let's have it out. Right. So I, I was recently asked to, to record a thing uh, for somebody, and they, they were, they were they, they, one of the Sustainable Development Goals, <laughs> um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, is around quality education. And somebody asked me to record a thing, and they're like, "What do you see as quality education?" Um, and I was like, oh, "That's quite a hard question to ask. I don't really know what that means." And I thought about it for a while, and then I thought, you know, what the, the word "quality" is sort of associated with something that's built to last, isn't it? Like the, the idea of quality goods—that it's not just sort of cheaply thrown together, like designed obsolescence or whatever. Something that's built to last. And then I was thinking, so so education—you can see how I reverse engineered this to, to suit my biases. Education that's built to last is an education where the the young person is able to educate themselves when there's no teacher there, right? Because when they leave school, there's no teacher there to tell you what to do and when and how all the time. And so self-directed education to be to be knowledgeable and skillful and dispositionally inclined towards being self-directed and being effective at, at being a self self-taught person, autodidactic. That seems to me to be a good outcome to aim for as a like a as a quality education, and that would be so. So so one of the recent episodes that I had was with Jay McTie, and um, it was all about backwards design. And and he start we start by saying you know like what's the sort of what's the sort of young person that you want to produce at the end of this at the end of this process? What are the sorts? Of, what does a person need to be like in order to survive and thrive in this world and to be well rounded? Um, and part of that is academic qualifications, but I don't think that it all is. I don't, I'm not sure that that is. And it was interesting when we spoke yesterday, you were, so, you were talking about how at your school, you backwards designed the, the curriculum and, and, and the, the end point was the A-level spec. You were like, we want every kid to, to succeed on these terms in terms of the A-level spec and we want to work backwards from that. And it seems that that worked very effectively at your school. You got amazing results. But I'm not sure that that 
the the A level spec is a good basis for be for for a, a preparation for being able to survive and thrive in the world. And I'm I'm not saying that that's all that you do at your school. I know that there's other things that you're interested in communication and and physical and mental health and well being and so on. Um, but I think that we need to look beyond the 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 ways in which we currently measure success and failure in education in terms of how many kids pass or fail GCSE and A-levels. Because there are loads of people who do really well in, in GCSEs and A-levels and go on to get first degrees from top universities and they're miserable because they aren't, they're not developed in other ways and they are in debt or they... Um, you know, estranged from their kids and they're on their fourth, you know, marriage or whatever it is, and they can't connect with people. So they, they didn't ask, they didn't develop that aspect of their lives. Um, and again, that comes down to autonomy. There was something else that, that, that Naomi Fisher said recently. And I don't think it was in the podcast that I had with her. I think it was offline. And she was saying that as, as a clinical psychologist, she, she works with children and adults. And adults that she works with often say that I'm having these problems in my life, whatever it might be. I am, you know, in debt, my relationship's going down the tubes, my business is going down the tubes, whatever it might be. And I don't feel able to control it. It feels like it's out of my control and I don't feel like I'm, I'm an agentic person. I don't feel like I'm able to, to affect what's going on. It just feels like it's all being done to me and they feel helpless and they don't know how to turn their life around because they, they haven't sort of developed those agentic muscles to, to use a slightly cringy phrase. Um, and so working backwards from that, I would want to, to build agency in at a much earlier age than, than, than we see in the mainstream system because you sort of need to practice that. You need to practice making decisions and making bad decisions and tasting what the consequences of those bad decisions are like in order to learn how to make better decisions later on. And so so that's just an example of the sort of like the, the, I think the reason why maybe we differ and we place different emphases in different places is because we have sort of different endpoints in mind. I don't think that's true. I think we've got the same endpoint. And uh, uh, so, so, uh, but I think that where we where we differ is that I think that the route to get there is different to the there's proximal ultimate aims. So so your ultimate aim is one that we can get behind, right? Auto, you know, um, what what's the phrase you use? Autodidacts. Autodidacticism, yeah, like self being, being the self-taught person. Fine. So auto, so or the ability to like it can be a, a verb or a noun, right? Uh, the, uh, like like the ability to. So so as an ultimate goal. It's fine, like being able to teach yourself, being well-rounded, like all of these things are, you know, they're they're important. Being autonomous, I, I think that the the route to get to that is doesn't necessarily look like the thing that you, you that you get to. So, um, for example, uh, if I want to get really great at jamming on my guitar, just being able to pick it up and noodle, the route to get there isn't just noodling away at my guitar. Anybody that's bought a guitar and let it gather dust in, and, and you'll probably say, well, look, I self-taught myself the guitar and now I'm in a band. Fine, but that's not the situation for most people. And it's no way to set up a system. It's what I call a fingers crossed approach, which is why if, if parents kind of say, well, I want my kid to teach himself to read. And if it takes until they're 13, that I'm okay with that. Like maybe as a personal choice, that's okay, but it's no way to set up an educational system that takes billions of pounds of taxpayers money and and it's supposed to present something of a leveler in terms of people having minimum sort of like entitlement uh, our end goal is not for kids to get to cover the a-level spec it's for them to have lives of choice and opportunity and to have a life of choice and opportunity you like you do need a, a clutch of great qualifications and and i'd be with you in terms of this idea of 
um, the, the way the system is set up to have winners and losers, the way that it's baked in, that there's fails and pass, I do think that that's immoral. And and, and um, I, 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 would, I would stand alongside you to burn down that system. I think one of the problems is that I don't haven't seen anything really credible that, that to, to to replace it. I, I've been thinking about this a lot at the moment. I think that sort of like some adaptive assessment systems using sort of ed tech, ongoing adaptive assessment systems may well provide something of a solution that's more motivating uh, to to that. But um, I, I think that we have got the same goal. Uh, but I think that the where we differ is the the way to get there. Yes, I want kids to be autonomous, but but. A, competence is a function of autonomy right you can't be autonomous unless you're competent how do you get competent i i don't think it's i don't think it's the ultimate goal of self-teaching yourself i think that earlier uh, earlier in stages of acquiring competence and eventually expertise you need explicit instruction lots of feedback plenty of chance for independent practice i mean <laughs> again this is this is really interesting. So, so I don't think that 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 we're at odds again because. So you said that we have the same goals, but the route by which you get to that goal or those sets of goals isn't necessarily the way that you get there. That you don't, for example, that you don't become creative at, at something, or you don't become a good critical thinker just just by like learning some generic critical thinking skills. That it has to be rooted in knowledge, right? Um, and likewise with creativity, you can be creative in a domain that you are very knowledge about to, to a far greater extent. And I understand that, that the, the, the way that you get to a particular point isn't necessarily by, you know, just like applying the goal at every step along the way. Um, but I don't think that it is a root thing. It's roots, plural. And that's why. So when we're talking about explicit instruction and, and for example, you know, in, in the, the book that we mentioned earlier, in Fear is the Mind Killer, the learning skills curriculum that we weren't suggesting that that replaces subject teaching or that they, they don't that kids don't have explicit instruction or that they don't have like you know like a knowledge rich curriculum but it's like should we have at the moment it's almost exclusive like the, the diet of learning that kids get is an almost exclusive diet especially at secondary of subject based knowledge disciplines essentially <clears throat> and there's no scope in there for interdisciplinary learning which happens a lot more in international schools, interestingly, but hardly at all in mainstream state schools in this country, at least. Um, and very little scope for self-directed learning as well. And I feel like just as a, as a rough, so in, in the learning skills curriculum, we had five lessons a week in year seven. And then it expanded into years eight and nine as well, which was about one day a week. So it was about 20% of the learning time. And you could argue about the percentages. Maybe maybe some people think that's too much. Other people think it's not enough. For me, I would, I would go for somewhere like 20% interdisciplinary learning, 20% self-directed learning, and 60% subject learning. And the other two things, the self-directed bit and the interdisciplinary bit draws on the learning that you're doing in those subject disciplines, but you're applying it in different ways. Um, and so it's not an either or thing. I think that it's a multiplicity thing. And so when I talk about diversifying the system, <clears throat> I think we can diversify it at the at system level. So you have many more schools. So to, just to, to use as a shorthand, like an XP type school, there, there would be an XP type school in every 
locality so that parents can choose that if they want and it's clear that you know it's oversubscribed that school by like 20 times or something like it's clear that there's a, a massive demand for schools like that um, and in many in many localities there, there aren't so that would be nice if we could have a diversity of schools within each ecosystem and that's not a free-for-all you know xp gets really good results you know it's not just like the, the free-for-all that you were describing um but also you could diversify a lot more within this within the system so that you could have the ability for example like the way in which the system narrows kids options down right so that you like do nine sub nine or ten subjects at gcse three at a level if you go on to a level and 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 of those nine at, at gcse five of them are compulsory anyway and the four options often you're strongly strong-armed down one channel or another to maximize the school's, you know, chance of looking good on paper, you know, that's just the brutal reality of what happens. And the way in which that narrows down, <clears throat> you know, just as somebody's going through adolescence and into adulthood and their interest in the world is taking them off in a hundred directions. They might be interested fleetingly sometimes and sometimes in a big way in theatre and art and culture and music and science and archaeology and whatever it might be. And but the system is just closing down their options at a time when it should be sort of branching out like a tree. And I think that you could have much more diversification within the system where you're taking like little nano courses, for example, and you would be able to drop drop a drop a subject and then pick it up later on as people do in life. Um, so I think that we could have much more diversification within that system. And I also have some thoughts on what you were talking about, about assessment, but I don't want to rabbit on for too long. So I'll see if you I'll pause for breath for now. You're winning me over with this, actually. Um, I, li I like I like what you have to offer. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna tie myself up into a bundle of contradictions. So interestingly, have you read Blueprint by Robert Plowman? No, I've not actually. So he's a geneticist, um, and um, I think you know, relatively controversial because he, he would probably be described as sort of like a. Uh, as erring towards sort of like genetic genetic determinism in, in in so far as he believes that genes account for basically um everything um yeah and uh he so he spent decades on on twin studies and, and and thinks that the jury is in in terms of if you take identical twins and you you put them into different and they and they get at birth sort of separated into different backgrounds like the the, the biggest determiner is 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 their genes so they have very similar educational outcomes even where one's put into a a family where there aren't high educational outcomes versus one of very similar weight they often go into similar professions have very similar personality traits um, and, and there are there are a number of um, there are there are a number of sort of examples he he gives for this and and, and also talks about I, I think he calls it like um, um, polygenetics where he, where he talks about how we need to get away from the idea of there being like a smart gene and and think about it more in terms of like the accumulation of genes so everybody's on a spectrum in all sorts of ways yeah. in the in the same way of like of like height he he sort of talks about how we have a scale of height and we might sort of broadly say somebody is sort of tall um but but we don't tend to put like we don't tend to put labels onto that we just sort of are aware that everybody's on a spectrum of height and and, and that that's determined by genes almost entirely um diet diet can kind of um play uh, into play with that but he argues that sort of like genes genes also manage uh, help us to manage and manipulate our own environment so that's difficult anyway the reason i bring him up is because in blueprint he talks about education and arrives, I think, at a conclusion which surprised me because his conclusion is genes basically account for everything. So schools aren't going to make much difference in terms of instruction. 
Therefore, but, but what schools can offer is opportunities, a, a really broad range of opportunities that otherwise pupils might not encounter. And he gives the example of Jimi Hendrix. He says the reason that Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitar player of all time is probably largely accounted for by, by his genes. However, if he had never seen a guitar, those genes would never have been realized. And he talks about this in terms of the school system, in terms of you may well be predisposed to being an excellent swimmer or um, woodworker or um, w whatever it is, or historian or, you know, um, writer. And so given that from his perspective, it's kind of already set in, in place. The best thing that schools can do is offer offer like the most opportunities so that kids have the opportunity to find out that they are massively predisposed to be particularly talented in a particular area. And that requires practice, of course, you know, um, uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard and all of that. Um, but uh, but yeah, that I think that that speaks to what you're what you're sort of advising and advocating for there. Um, I'm, I, I'm aware of the, so the counter argument of this is because humans have been so successful in the accumulation of knowledge, we increasingly have kind of had to specialize. So it was easier to be a polymath in the 17th century than it is now because the accumulation of like systematic knowledge was just was just lower. Whereas now, if you want to make a splash in a particular discipline, you have to like my brother's my brother's uh, um, got a doctorate in um, computer and satellite engineering. And his doctorate was on like the, I think it was on the, the specific talk of rotary systems of lunar modules on like specific density of, and he's like, he said to me, like, probably three people ha like need to read that, but the three people that need to read it really need to read it. Um, but that's the level of specialization that you kind of need to get to by the time you get to PhD. And I think that, that, that that's probably the rationale for the school system increasingly, that's not to say it's right, but that's probably the rationale for the school system increasingly specializing and narrowing as, as pupils move through it. And also perhaps to give them the chance of, to speak to your sort of choice and needs and wants thing of, I've done RE every year for the last 10 years. I hate it. Why do I have to do more of it at 15, 16, 17, 18? I should be able to exercise some sort of autonomy to say, I get that it's some people's bag. It's not my bag. I don't want to learn any more about it. Um, so so, so that, I think that where I would get to is um, probably advocating for a a really narrow set of competencies that we guarantee for all children and they're going to be around probably something like literacy numeracy the scientific method and basically holding having that more or less as a, as a pass fail sort of like driving test sort of thing having it where kids can take it essentially at any any point beyond their at any point on their on their journey through education and holding schools to an incredibly holding schools to account like really holding to account on on almost universally sort of like having kids pass that and then having a more a, a more flexible sort of menu and offer in terms of pupils being able to take a kind of music grades approach to other areas in terms of you can then progress in 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 different areas and some people might say i'm going to spend like 
70% of my time on physics. I love physics or on the sciences. I want to be a doctor and I'm aware that I need um, And other people may try and take a much more balanced sort of approach about kind of like everything. I don't know what, what, what it is that I want to do yet. And so I want to keep my, my toe in the water in all of these sorts of subjects, plus better sort of vocational offers and, and, and larger enrichment offers that people in private schools often enjoy. Um, so so I'm, I'm not... Um, I think I'm with you sort of part of the way here. Um, uh, and I think there's definitely scope for that. I'm, I'm not at all convinced that this idea of like lots of self-directed learning is in people's best interests. Um, uh, and because I still think that within that broad sort of spectrum of interests, pupils will be well served by having expert instruction um, and, and that being the kind of default offer like I said, it's not to say that there aren't odd pupils who are children who teach themselves Mandarin from YouTube. Possibly there are. I think that very often those kids tend to be children from the most affluent and advantaged backgrounds anyway. And um, uh, so like crack on. Um, but for us to set up a system in which all kids have a kind of a equal crack of the equal crack at sort of like that. I think that early expert instruction um, it, it, it is key. Uh, and, and so I think I'm partially with you on terms of the the menu on, on offer for children as they go through school. Um, not so much, I think, on this like idea. And I know it's your bag, but not so much on this idea of like self self-directed learning. Well, I'm I'm sort of in the middle ground as well. I'm not I'm not saying that it should be all that people have, although some people want to choose that. Um, but have you read a book called Free to Learn by Peter Gray? I really recommend it. It's a fascinating read. He's he's far far out on the fringes. He did. He's coming on the podcast soon, and so so his his book starts with with the with the phrase "Go to hell." So so he was in. Um, a head teacher's office with his son who is nine years old and his son hated school and had been like playing truant and just kicking off and causing like problems and behaving badly and what have you and the, the, the school like leadership and social workers and the parents and child psychologists they had one of those big round table meetings and the kid was there and they were all putting on this united front and they were like listen you just got to you just got to learn how to be with this you know like we're putting on a united front here you have to go to school and this kid <laughs> to his credit at age nine responded to that with go to hell and you know ran out of the room and slammed the door and it was obviously horrendous right the parents were both in tears and they were like what are we going to do here we can't keep forcing him to go through something that he's that he's really not not happy about um and so they're like well we need to take him out we, we need to take him out of school and do something different with him. And they took him to a place called Sudbury Valley, um, which is in Massachusetts. Um, which, and I'm not sure if they had to move to be there. Um, and it's similar to the Summerhill model, similar to the self to the self managed learning college model where I used to work, where it's very permissive that that there are, that there, there are no lessons, there is no expert explicit instruction as you were talking about. And the kid was really happy there. And, and and Peter Gray describes it. So Peter Gray's background, he's an evolutionary biologist, very accomplished uh, scientist and widely published. And he was looking at this and his son was really happy. So he's like, that's great. But then he was like, I'm not sure about this place. So he was like, if you go, if you turn up there, he said, you just assume that they were on break time. Like the kids are like playing. 
they're building things they're you know climbing in trees they're running around uh, and it's like they're just, that's just they're, they're doing that all the time and some of them are watching telly some of them are reading you know they're doing they do all kinds of things all kinds of projects and he was like I'm not really sure <laughs> that this is in the long-term interest of my kid like this is a very very persuasive setup I beg your pardon permissive setup um, and so he started to research it um, and he looked at previous studies of, of previous alumni, of the, the, a small number of previous alumni of the school had gone on to do very well. And he was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like they don't do qualifications, but they go on, they get into college, they get well-paid jobs. Some of them are, you know, self-made millionaires and what have you, or they're in the arts. Um, and, and then he was like, so I'm going to go at this in a more systematic way. And so he carried out a systematic survey of every kid who'd ever been to, to Sudbury Valley. And there were hundreds of them and he had a really high return rate and they surveyed them and he went and interviewed nearly all of them working with somebody else. And it's just, it's incredibly persuasive and it's, and it's so, it's so out there. Like it's hard to, to quite sort of get your head around because it's, because it's so far removed from, from the reality tunnel that we inhabit as teachers. Um, but I, I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's on Audible as well if you want to, if you want to listen to it. Um, I'll have it as my I'll have it as my next Audible listen. Okay, maybe we should what, come back. One thing that's like so my own bias, my own sort of like confirmation bias is spiking. Of course, um, one thing that sort of stood out is his dad was an accomplished university professor. Yeah, and 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 the data like the in terms of the systematic review, the data that I'd love to dig into in an environment a school offer like that is. What you know? What's the background like socioeconomic status of these kids? Given that we know that like the biggest predictor of kids' outcomes in life is is socioeconomic status, um, it, it's not at all that interesting or surprising to me if you take a group of kids from incredibly advantaged backgrounds and put them in like any any system at all that they go on to do pretty well in 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 life. That's not that interesting. And and I think that there are counterexamples. There's a movie called Approaching the Elephant, which in, in which a, a free school, a charter school in America, they they set it up exactly with the um, exactly with the kind of Summerhill. It's very permissive, no lessons structure, and it's an absolute disaster. Um, and it's not safe, and 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 the children are desperately unhappy because it kind of becomes a, a kind of like a a Hobbesian sort of like nightmare. I, I don't think you know. So I don't think it's that helpful for, for to 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 necessarily exchange sort of like, well, here's a Summerhill model where everybody seems to do well, and here's one where it seems to be an absolute disaster. Um, I, I, because I, I I don't because then I think you would just be in a constant cycle of saying, well, this school has no excuses and the outcomes are great. This school has no lessons and the outcomes are. Uh, are great and ultimately we need to sort of talk a bit more about like a system level which is why which is yeah i don't know because maybe you would say well that shows that's why plurality is sort of needed in 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 the system but but i but ultimately like it's a it's a false choice quite often right in terms of especially in lots of areas in in the country where there can only be one secondary school or there can only be one primary school uh, and, and secondly in terms of the sorts of things that you think you might want may not serve the best interests of kids so you you there invoked well the kid was really happy he hated school you, you use an interesting phrase of to his credit he told all of the adults that care about him to yeah, go to I wasn't, help. I wasn't sure about that phrase as it came out through my lips, but I think I just meant that like, just to, like what, what, what strength of character that showed for, to be able to stand up to all of those adults who are all putting on this united front and to just like the, the defiance 
um, that was clearly coming, like he had enough sort of strength of character to say, I, I'm not going to just to, to roll over just because there's a lot of you, <laughs> you know, but, but as, as I said that phrase, I was like, I'm not sure that to his credit is the best way to quite characterize that because it was a deeply upsetting moment for, the, for that family and for everyone concerned. So I would maybe not phrase it quite that way again. Because ultimately, and, and I'm sure that he was more happy where he got, when he got to go and climb trees and watch TV all day. The, the, the question isn't, oh, would kids be happier if they ate McDonald's and played Fortnite all day? The question is, is that in kids' best interests? Yeah, uh, but uh, if you uh, look uh, at the long-term outcomes of, of this place, and so, so it's, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I'm a middle ground guy. Like you <laughs> mentioned Aristotle earlier, I'm a middle ground guy, and I, I think that it's usually where the, where the most sensible things lie, right? But but but, but with, so so and the, the the socioeconomic status question is a really interesting one, and it's something that I want to ask Peter about. And I, I because because Sudbury Valley is a private school; it has to be it's privately funded. Is they run very very cheaply it, per kid? It runs at about half the cost of a state school, and like. Likewise, at SMLC, I can talk to... Because like, they don't have to worry about textbooks or learning materials. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there are there are, there, there are a number of ways. In, and there's a much higher ratio of adults to kids as well. There's about one to six adults to kids ratio. Um, so, yeah, there's no science labs, right? Although they do have science equipment. Um, but I can speak to... So, so at SMLC, the Self-Managed Learning College, they have a hardship fund. And like it used to be state funded. It used to be funded by the council, and it used to be like school refusers and kids who were really struggling in school, or for whatever it, for whatever reason. Almost always, the the young people that I worked with there had been bullied really badly, which is a very serious problem in in the state sector as well. And it's one of the things that Ian Cunningham talks about a lot. Uh, the guy who's the founder of SMLC. I spoke to him in episodes two and four of the podcast, and he said, you know, I was once at a, a council meeting, and they said, oh, we made bullying go from 35% down to 28% isn't that successful and he's like you're happy with 28% whatever whatever the figure was like the rate the rate of bullying my son was has been bullied recently at school like it's no fun and it's rampant in in mainstream in very large secondary schools in particular um, so there are all kinds of reasons why 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 people end up there and as i say it used to be state funded and then the council withdrew the funding, unfortunately. And so there is that problem that maybe this is a biased sample, but there is a hardship fund and there are kids who, you know, are on the breadline who get to go there. And I taught, I taught a few of them who I taught, two of them who were in, who were in, um, who I taught in mainstream, who were really struggling um, and who then went to SMLC and really thrived, like really thrived. Um, and so, and it's partly like a timing thing, right? Like the part of the, the the problem with the with the inflexibility of the mainstream model is that it's just like everyone at age sixteen in May and June, uh, age fifteen or sixteen is going to go through these high stakes tests at exactly the same time, and some of them might be going through horrendous things in their home lives, and they're just not ready to do it at that point in time. And if we could be a little bit flexible in when people could choose to take those those high stakes tests, should they wish to take them at all. I think that that is a way that we can overcome the, the enforced failure problem that you mentioned earlier. Um, but it is a, it is a, a, it is an interesting question. And, and 
it's one that I would like to to get my head around more. But just to come back very briefly on, by the way, I've still not got to question one on my list. <laughs> this is all been a, a fascinating diversion. To come back to the divergent and convergent thing and your brother, who's like an incredible specialist. Funny enough, my brother also, he's a brain surgeon, right? So he's like, a re- and he's a, he specializes in you know, a particular type of spinal surgery that again, like about five people know about on the planet. Um, and but to my mind, it's like in any sort of process of inquiry, you start with a divergent phase and then it and then it converges, you know. And so that when, like when I'm I work with teachers a lot on practitioner inquiry, you know, so they're investigating some aspects of their practice and it might be about feedback, say. So but they don't start by saying, right, I'm going to do verbal feedback. And like, to what extent is this effective at improving outcomes for kids? You start with a baseline baseline data collection. And that's not like just so that you've got something to compare to later on. The baseline data collection is like, what's going on with regard to feedback? What do children say about feedback? What's happening with regard to feedback? What proportion of it um, is written versus verbal? To what extent are they reading? Are they, is, it, is it responded to? Um, what's the timing of the feedback that's happening? So you're just trying to get a really rich picture of what's going on with feedback at the moment. So it's a divergent phase. And then you identify what the what the nub of the problem is. And then you come up with your evaluative research question, which is where it converges. And then you come up with something very specific, which is like, to what extent does verbal feedback given for 10 minutes at the start of a Monday lesson with this group of kids improve their retention of keywords across a six-week period or whatever it might be, right? Um, and it seems that that's, that's a nice way to, if you just expand that out, that's a nice way to think about that problem where you, you throw the net really wide, first of all. And I love this idea of lots of little nano courses um, running alongside, like you say, a, a core offer. And a question that occurred to me when you were asking that was, you know, you're talking about core, core offer of like literacy, numeracy, the scientific method. And obviously that closely mirrors GCSE, the, the, the core subject, right? The compulsory ones, science, maths and English. But I wonder what your take is on whether, you know, when I spoke to, to Debbie Kidd, I think it was, she was talking about how we should see that as like functional skills type courses, like, like a GCSE in maths is probably too high a bar to, to, to clearly because one third of kids fails it, right? So that's too high a bar to set as like the core offer for, for, for that everybody has as their entitlement. Um, so I was thinking that maybe that needs to be scaled back into some sort of functional skills courses around literacy, numeracy and science. Interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, at the risk of being kicked out of the secret cabal trad club, um, I, <laughs> yes, that's the, that's the inevitable conclusion. I wouldn't call it a functional skills course because I think that it, it that muddies the water and that yeah. there is already functional skills. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, if, if we have, so... Partially, we're just norm referencing it, norm referencing it and saying a third of kids fail regardless. So it's sort of, from that perspective, it kind of means it doesn't matter how hard or easy it is, because if you made it way easier, but still said we're going to norm reference it and fail the bottom third, then you still have a th- bottom third of kids who are failure. Yeah. Um, I, I would separate. So, so I think literally and numeracy, especially, and potentially the scientific method. The reason that I would prioritise those um, uh, for uh, for two reasons. Um, one is to go back to your purposes of education. One of the oldest is the kind of ancient Greek idea of preparation for sort of citizenship, by which they mean that, so ancient Greek had a direct democracy, right? They, they, they had one of the purest forms of democracy. You go to the Agora and you would literally cast your vote for almost every decision. 
Um, we don't have that. We have a representative democracy where we essentially outsource that to our to our MPs to cast that direct vote. Now, if you want people engaged in direct democracy and arguably in representative democracy, what do they need? Well, one of the things that they need is that they, they do need to be numerate because otherwise you can be fooled really easily. <laughs> you can be fooled by people who are trying, you know, in any political system, uh, in any polis, there are going to be folks who are skilled in rhetoric and sophistry um, in formal and informal fallacies to try and get you to to try and persuade you and get you to agree with them. And, and two, two, for me, two of the best defences against that being literate and being numerate. Uh, the bit, like a, a, a literate polis is a really good way of, uh, in terms of protecting against tyranny and exploitation. Mm. Similarly, being being numerate. And I think there's also an argument around the scientific method. I, I, I suppose, like lots of people, I've been really quite proud of the way that the nation has responded to the to the vaccine call up in a way that other nations haven't so why is it that we haven't had to offer bribes or sanctions or um uh, more coercive sort of measures to get people to vaccinate themselves against covid uh, my 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 hunch on that is because we ha we actually have a pretty scientifically literate nation because we've done a good job in terms of educating people. Pretty much all kids learn about smallpox and inoculation and and, um, and as they go through secondary science and and so it means that this isn't a massively controversial thing for them. Um, that the reason that we've got that sort of great citizenship is because we have a nation that's educated in. The scientific method and 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 relatively literate and numerate. So that's why they have that protected status. And 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 so a logical extension of that would be probably that English literature and English language are a language potentially sort of separated. Insofar as I think, is it necessary? Uh, so on my criteria, is it necessary to have sort of like becoming lit literate in terms of understanding English language, yes. Is it necessary to understand the plot of Macbeth and love it or not? No. Like that so 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 maybe that would go into the the kind of learning the canon, um uh, and or, you know, learning why perhaps the canon should be updated or replaced or de emphasized. That becomes almost like a, one of your nano courses or your elective courses and that it may well be something that people are really interested in and want to pursue um uh but but it may also be that they, that they want to you know they want to learn about um how to play the flute or 19th century medicine or whatever it is um and then we kind of have a parity so that aspect of english would have kind of have a parity with with those other with those other areas and then in terms of like so what do you need so the yeah if if you're if you're essentially saying we we think that 100 percent of people will get this then it needs to be a, a, a it needs to be pitched at a level where 100 percent of people could could effectively pass whatever that is and we do this with driving tests right we, we set up driving tests so that not not quite nominally but 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 effectively 100% of people can pass them and it could the government could decide we're going to make driving tests way harder and the expectation will be that a third of people will fail driving tests and never pass them 
Well, they could do that. They just they just tweak the the difficulty of the of of, of the test. They don't because it, in order to enjoy a life of choice and opportunity, and, and 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 in order to access so much of the world, like you need to be able to drive. So we need to get it so that everybody can drive, because otherwise we're massively excluding people from big chunks of of society of the world. And it seems to me that there's a, there's a parallel argument with English and, um, and maths there. We say that these are the golden tickets. You need a grade four or a grade five in English and maths. Otherwise, like we're going to close these 300 doors to you. But we're also going to say that like it's not available to everybody. We're going to guarantee that a third of people don't get those. And that is where the immorality comes in from 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 me. If it was the case of it's set up so that almost 100 percent of people get it, um, then I think it's fair enough to say, Okay, like all of these doors are open, but they will be open to everybody as long as you as long as you do this thing. And and, and on your point of like um, it happening in May, June, when kids are 16 years old, and that might not be appropriate for kids who are going through difficulty in their lives or, or, or whatever. I think that, that, that that's true. I think the opposite is also true. And I think that there are lo there's a big chunk of kids who are going through the state state system who are ready to pass their maths GCSE at age 13 or 14. And are just dragging yeah. their heels through, getting increasingly bored and frustrated with 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 school, yeah. uh, and not having the opportunity to cultivate and uh, th those other areas of, of of specific interest. Absolutely, and it just seems like a lot of what we do is because it's convenient. Like it's it's sort of it's easy to do it at the end of at the end. Like it's it's difficult. Like stage, not age, teaching. Because then you're like, okay, so let's let this really bright kid or group of kids do their GCSE at age 14. What we're going to do then? We're going to like start teaching A level at 16, and that's going to be logistically hard because maybe the sixth form college is on a different site. And then what do we do when they pass their A level at 16? Are we going to start teaching like degree level stuff? How does this play out? You know, like logistically, it's hard. It's not in, it's not uh, intractable that problem. But it's it's it, like the, the, if there's one thing that we know about human nature and child development is that it's like it's really diverse. Like kids develop at different rates, at different times. Sometimes they go backwards. Sometimes it seems like they're really struggling, and then suddenly they just shoot forward at a rate of knots. And everyone's different, you know. And so I think that as far as possible, we can we can make make the system more flexible. Um, and I, I don't think it's that hard to, to imagine what that might look like in terms of a school curriculum. I, I do think that it ends up looking like some, some form of stage, not age, teaching, um, at least where you're grouping kids in, you know, from two or three year groups together. And I know that that happens in other countries and, and hasn't, doesn't happen here really at all, apart from in some uh, special schools. Um, so there's, there's a lot that we could do there. But um, I, I think I might draw a line under this part of the conversation for now if i may because i'm quite keen we're almost at the the one hour point and i am keen to get my my first planned question in before we <laughs> okay. get to that milestone um and yeah there's way more thank you i, I really enjoyed that exchange you're very it reasonable you're far too reasonable uh to uh to to really to really fall out with um <laughs> thank you that was really interesting So yeah, the, the the thing that I really want to talk to you about is your work with the Reach Foundation, because this strikes me as a really good example of somebody who's rethinking education or, or, or sort of rethinking or maybe even like expanding the idea of what a school 
is or what what schools should be um and so could we just to start could you just sort of for the benefit of listeners explain what the reach foundation is and what its sort of inception was yeah sure so um uh, it's probably easiest to start with the school um so in 2012 um uh two two uh school leaders ed van care and rebecca kramer um set up a new school called uh, a free school called reach academy felton um and uh it was in it's, it was an all three school so it has children from uh then from four to 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 16 uh, since we since has a we've opened a sixth form college in in the school um or a sixth form in the school um and also have a nursery so we have children from two to 18 now um and the the school um so i joined the school in 2015 uh, as part of the in the primary phases uh, i'm a primary teacher by background um and um the the secondary the, the secondary got their first set of gcse results in um i think 2016 and they were phenomenal um they they i think that the the, the progress eight score put the school in the top in the top 10 in the country for, for non-selective schools um, and m maintain those sort of like great, great results at, at GCSE. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, the school's, the school's mission was that, that every pupil is able to enjoy a life of choice and opportunity. Um, and we unapologetically think that part of that is having a clutch of great academic qualifications for the reasons that we've already described that we can argue that the system shouldn't be that way but it is and, and as long as it is we're letting down our children massively if we say don't worry so much about gcse's go and climb trees um, that they, they would soon be quite cross with us when they get to 18 or 19 and say why didn't you make me get better gcse's it's I, I now have a very very few options so we think that those core qualifications and, and academic qualifications are really important and so um so uh, um that we often joke that that like when people come visit that they either criticize us for being like too soft and cuddly um or for being sort of like too too sort of like rigorous and uh, and, and and strict because we the ed and rebecca were also clear as well as the as well as the academic rigor that one of the absolute foundation stones of the school was having really really strong relationships and acting in a way that um beyond the tr traditional role of the school in terms of really sort of like forging those relationships especially with families over time it's one of the reasons that they, that they set up the school with very small year groups so only 60 kids in each year group as they go through um oh, because... really? that's interesting it's very similar to xp uh, they have 50 per year group that's great I, I exactly love that. it comes back to what we we're talking about earlier about the size of secondary schools is i don't think it's safe when you have so many people that kids are essentially strangers to one another and to the teachers yeah and i'm sorry to hear about your son it sounds rough and and i think you're probably right that that the larger the school the easier it is for also the easier it is for kids to fall through the cracks to be unknown to be like invisible um, and we like ed and rebecca wanted to know every family by name really well and for that relationship to develop over time um uh, and so that they visited they, they visited every single family in their home and, and every child in primary and secondary gets a home visit where a senior leader head of year pastoral leaders they they go and have tea in the in the living rooms of the of, of the families and we get to know them and we, we we make promises to each other um and we acknowledge that there are going to be tough times and there are going to be like any you know we're, we're going to be together for 
potentially sort of like 15 years there are going to be there are going to be rough patches and <laughs> any any over that sort of period of time there are going to be highs and lows and that's okay like we're 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 here together for for that um uh so the results were great and, and interesting on the relationship and Rebecca looked at this kind of like the the results that kids have got and some have got like some really really you know top sets of GCSE results um but they looking through them and this is interesting um perhaps looking down that list of results their conclusion was that the best predictor of the results that kids got were the quality of the, the strength and quality of relationship with that that kid and their family had with at least one teacher and, and maybe different teachers that seemed to be mm. like the really big determiner wow. um so where we had kids with relatively high prior attainment but they hadn't done so well it was it it, it was usually because there, there hadn't been that really strong sort of united relationship between the school and the parents oh, and vice and vice versa where we'd had the real successes uh, in terms of kids coming with relatively lower prior attainment but, but getting phenomenal results it seemed to be not the quality of instruction because they were getting the same instruction we were a really small school um the the, the strength of relationships seemed to be the um no they, they were of course all getting ace instruction as well <laughs> but but that and that's why you know you wouldn't say that the risk here is that people think oh teaching doesn't matter it's all about sort of like being cuddly we don't think that um but we also don't think it's like just put them in front of an expert teacher and like do amazing explicit instruction and then everything is fine. And that was our really big learning, I think, from that experience of, um, so the, the way that we, the, the way we would describe it now is a great school is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, and maybe that comes from a bit of a position of, of strength because we were getting great results. So, so we're not sort of saying that as an apology for like poor results of we're going to do this sort of like other stuff because the results aren't great. Um, the great results were there and still for many of our kids and many for our families like we we really felt that that wasn't enough for them to realize that life of choice and opportunity yeah thank you the um the, the thing about the relationships with home is so fascinating and i know that that's something that that was was very strong in uh some of the charter schools in america that was the first time that i ever came across it was when the charter schools when they were going to visit everyone's homes and i had a previous um guest on the podcast rachel mcfarlane who's um i don't know if you're familiar with her work she she wrote a really interesting book recently called obstetrics for schools which is was looking at um at like child mortality and how child mortality rates have come down through through the practice of obstetrics and like surely we can do the same thing for um in, for, for disadvantaged kids for closing the disadvantage gap so she's using that as a metaphor for how to do that but she's been a head teacher of a number of schools and and they also got phenomenal results and she was an avowed learning to learner by the way um and she um and they went into every every kid's home just like you were describing and had and did you did you did, were you involved in those home visits yourself yeah 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 i've done i've done loads of so, so both as a teacher and, a, and as, as a senior I, I, I later was a an assistant head at the school and so going on as an assistant head um can I just ask about because this is something that I would really like to to boost the signal of, and so I was just wondering that if there are any if there are any teachers or senior leaders listening to this who think how might how does that work logistically? I mean, having small having a small cohort size obviously works like helps because you're having to visit less of them, um, but just in terms of like the, like how long are the visits? Like what what time of the day does it? Are you out of school? Is your lessons being covered? Is this on Saturday mornings? Just that, in terms of the logistics, how did it actually work? 
Yep. So all good questions. And so checking our own privilege, we do have a small school. However, you know, that brings with it its own disadvantages. We have a smaller gag, and so you know we don't have as, as many resources in terms of members of staff. A smaller um, gag, did you say? Uh, sorry, there's more like funding, like uh, in terms of like the what the, the money that you get for the kids that come in. If you've only got 60 kids in a year group, then you have less money than a school with 600 kids. Because... Yeah. What does gag stand for of interest? It's the I, I can't remember the exact. It's the, it's the it's the name given to like the. So I think it's the government something grant. So it's like uh, basically. Okay. Got you. Thank um, you. Maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's anyway. It's 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 about it's about five grand per people, right? I think yeah. that's the way that it works okay. out. Okay. So if you have anyway, the 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 point is, if you have more pupils, then you get more money in, and so you'll have more members of staff. And so um, so whilst it is true that we have a smaller number of pupils, and therefore it's kind of easier to go and visit all of them, we also have a smaller pool of staff to to do those visits. So I don't think it's impossible, even if you have large a large sort of like. Uh, Pan to be able to 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 do it. Um, so the way that it would work is um, anybody that's new to the school will will get a visit, and and we also often do visits throughout the year, school uh, home visits throughout the year as well. We've worked hard for those not to be like punitive visits, so we've worked hard not to only go and visit when something is wrong, um, because then it very quickly gets that kind of association, that Pavlovian association of like we're coming to get told off, and and I think very often for 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 well very often for sort of parents um, um, within our community, people arriving at their door and 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 sort of like inviting themselves in is is like not always the best experience for them. Yeah, it's a big thing to do. So so that really is like trying to trying to break that down in terms of like helping them understand that this is different and this is kind of a partnership. So um, the, the visits tend to take about half an hour. Um, uh, they almost always happen after school. Um, and they they may happen sort of in the for, for our for maybe for our reception team in terms of inducting new kids in they might be doing it in the first term or even in the Easter before. So so getting so in the Easter term before uh, sorry the summer term before um, the, the new cohort joins, sort of starting to get some of those visits in and spreading them out. We, it, it, it is, it is a time like it does take time, and like we're lucky that it's really prioritised by leadership. And so we, and you, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, and you just do this once, do you? When the when the student is just joined or is about to join the school, is it just one? Is it a one-off thing? So everybody gets at least one home visit in our secondary where if they're moving over to a new head of year or a new set of teachers, then it may be that they get one each year. Right. Um, anybody new to the school gets a home visit. And then we also use home visits throughout the year with um, where, as and when is necessary for different sorts of uh, reasons. Um, so. I, I, so yes, there's a, there is a time commitment. You know, it takes it takes half an hour. And we'll try we'll try and sort of like stack them together. So you might be, be able to do sort of like three three or four. If you leave school at at, at, at three thirty, you might be able to do do three or four and, and then go home. And we try and strip away lots of other stuff. Like 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 we think really carefully about what we don't do. So we don't do lots of out of, out of class marking. We don't do lots of sort of like meetings that are, that are necessary. Um, so that we can focus on 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 this work. But but the other thing is. Very often, I think we find that actually it's kind of like a, um, it's like what's that? An, an, an ounce of preparations worth a pound of 
a pound of repair or something like that. Let's say, for example, it is because a kid's finding school really tricky and they're not engaged in their in their in their lessons. You could have like dozens of conversations with those with that kid. Maybe you're sanctioning them and putting them in detention for for not focusing. Maybe you're making phone calls home. Maybe you're having meetings about what you do. We often find that actually like. 20 minutes in the living room with parents saying look we're, we're like we're, we're, we're worried here and we want such and such to do really well and it seems like it's not working at the moment what can we do mm. we often find that actually that that is that is half an hour an hour really, really it saves you tons of little bits of time throughout the year i'm not saying that every single time it's like magic mary poppins goes in and like it and, and it solves all of the problems but it also communicates, I think, to the family of like we're on this journey together, and and like we are a team. So so that's it. And we make like I said, we make promises to each other. So we have what what's called our whatever it takes commitments, and the, the pupil, the parent, and the um, and the teacher all sign that, and it and it sort of sets out your commitments to each other in terms of in terms of what what you promise to do. Uh, to, to sort of act in the best interest of the child and, and all of it is like we are a team around this child and we're going to we're going to do we're all going to do our bit and work together to ensure that this child has the best possible opportunities mm, yeah incredible um and so so thank you for that Go, going back to the to the foundation like, i know that you you talk about this phrase cradle to career um, which seems to be the big idea that sort of sits behind this this foundation. So, what is the foundation, and what's this idea of the of cradle to career? Yeah. So, um, so the the found so the school uh, the school was doing was doing that work, and then we started to open um, we started to open up um, to uh, and, uh, we opened up a nursery, and we we're doing work in nursery. Actually, and we started to realize that in terms of what we offer so 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 partial as i say strength of relationships seem to be really really important alongside great sort of like academic uh in, in instruction and a rigorous curriculum and that, and that sort of stuff um uh, but there was also something about where we were intervening and i use the word intervening sort of really loosely because it's a bit of a horrid word um yeah uh, but but for the sake intervening is the word i use um so Ed actually, our founder went to um, went to do a home visit for for our pioneer cohort in our frontier cohort in primary. Um, so he's in year nine now, uh, but he was in he was he was joining our reception, and um, he uh, so when ed arrived at the school he was there were no toys and it was a it was a relatively small flat but there were no toys anywhere there was there were no books uh, no children's books um it was just a, a a very grown-up sort of like living room and there was a big widescreen tv and he was a couple of inches away from this tv watching this tv and i tried to like talk to the child and the child didn't didn't register his name or sort of like uh, respond to, to to sort of conversation. He quickly realised he was not really verbal. He he couldn't really he couldn't really speak. Didn't really have any language. He was about I think he was about three years old at that point, maybe maybe four. And um, throughout that home visit, sort of got to know got to know it was mum there. Got to know um, his his mum there and um, his mum. They they'd um, come over from another country and were fe- and were feeling quite isolated. Didn't have loads of English herself um not massively feeling didn't feel massively confident in terms of how you do 
bring up a, a small child and, and the sorts of things that small children need. And so that meant that they could do so straight away. It meant that our, our family support worker was able to go around and, and take loads of toys and take loads of books and sort of show mum how to how to play with a child and how they can learn to play for themselves and how you can do that co sort of like co-play and co-regulation and and, and and sort of like develop language and, and communication and and the kind of like the the sort of like back and forth sort of um, uh, interactions that, that we know are so crucial for for, for small children yeah. and toddlers and babies. So that child is now, like I say, in year nine, and, and, and it's been tough. Like, it's, it has been really tough for them, and they're still not at age-related uh, age uh, expectations um, in, in, in all areas, and they've had a lot of intensive support, and, and there have been a lot of, like, wins along the way. So when um, he, he got his expected standard in maths in year six, it was a cause of great celebration that, that he'd, uh, that he'd uh, um, managed to achieve that, but he's still, he's still sort of, like, on a journey. However, it wasn't actually wasn't just him in the in in the flat. He also had a baby, a, a tiny baby sister, and she now is in year six, and it's an entirely different story with her. She's like top, like one of the top of the class. She's really sort of like socially, like has great sort of like socially social acuity. She is flourishing and thriving at school and really sort of like enjoying it, um, and. I, I think that the the reflection from that from from Ed was, what if we'd been there two years earlier for the older child? And it's where we started to realise that actually the the first thousand and one days are just like absolutely critical. And those working in child development will be sort of saying duh to the to if they're listening to this. <laughs> but 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 I think that we we don't acknowledge this enough in schools and quite often it feels like, well, you know, they arrive at four and like fingers crossed that first thousand one days was, was that, like the kid got all of the, uh, everything that they needed. But Ed especially has always been like quite proactive in terms of, well, why can't we do this thing? Let's just start working like much younger with children. Like, and, and, and I think that's part of like what we're trying to communicate in terms of the career offer that schools actually have a lot more, power, latitude, opportunity to do a lot of this sort of great work. And so the cradle to career started to, to, we started to think, well, how can we offer a, how can we offer more in those earlier years for our community, um, as well as the ongoing sort of destination stuff of the, of the career? What would we need, we need to provide in those earliest years? What do we need to provide for families alongside the school as the kind of core offer? with those, as I mentioned before, great academic qualifications are necessary. This isn't to say that school doesn't matter. It's the absolute core of what happens. Um, but but what else? It's it, That's necessary, but it's not sufficient, we don't think. We need we need other things. And, and, and so that's where the foundation came in terms of trying to coordinate what that model would look like um, uh, in, in terms of the, the hub, which offered the reach hub, the reach children's hub, which offers a lot of that zero to zero to three work and zero to five work, um, family support work, as well as the school and the way they interact with each other and ongoing sort of like destinations. So the foundation where I work now is really trying to, and it's still early days, but trying to sort of get clear on what that model might look like and how other partners might develop similar models in their communities. Right. 
there's, there's so many questions. <laughs> um, one of them is just about like how you identify, because my naive understanding of this is that parents only like, apply for schools when their kid is three or four or something. And so how do you know which which zero to three kids to work with? Yeah, so universal offer. So it's not just for children or families that go to our school. So it's a universal offer within the community. Um, uh, and, and so uh, th that's part of it. And within our community, there was not a lot for zero to three. Um, uh, there was no, there were no NCT classes within Feltham, for example. So if you became pregnant, then you had to get two buses if you wanted to go and do an NCT class. Um, so uh, a universal offer to begin with, and, and and that also gets around, but this is tough, gets around that kind of like people feeling like they're being targeted because because they're bad parents or whatever it is. Um, so, so that's part of it. The second thing is just like us really, um, especially the, the children's hub, really working hard for it to be sort of of the community and not for the community, uh, or and certainly not to the community. Um, so rather than it being a thing that is done to the community, or for the community, really increasingly sort of handing over control as much as possible to the community themselves, so that folks that have done the, you know, folks uh, who have come along and done the, uh, um, uh, an antenatal sort of like uh, uh, baby development class or, or a baby massage class or whatever it is, that they start to advocate and they start to, within the community, sort of like fly the flag and drive and drive this forward. Um, and, and that was born out of a lot of the work that that, that was done with the, the, the May Lim, who, who leads our Reach Children's Hub, alongside Luke Billingham, who um, uh, pushed forward a, a lot of the initial work. He, he's a, a, an amazing community organiser. Um, uh, alongside Citizens UK sort of helped us to understand our community better by conducting a kind of listening campaign. So the first six months was a, was a, a listening campaign. And I asked you this question yesterday of... Um, one of the one of the questions that they that they sort of push you on is when was the last time that you had a conversation with somebody without where you didn't have an agenda um and thinking about Never. that profession, <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about that professionally especially if you're a school leader or a teacher and the sort of interactions you have with parents and 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 I know that Ed sort of reflected on this and sort of said when, if he was honest with himself, when he said that when he says to himself that he doesn't have an agenda, that's when he most has an agenda. Um, yeah, it's like, to, but I mean, to not have an agenda is sort of an agenda in in itself, you know. <laughs> right. Get out of that one. <laughs> um, so, but it was helping us to understand our community, and 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 that was fascinating because they said, you know, there have been plenty of people actually who have come in and said that they're going to do this six-week program, this for the for the community. They're going to do these coffee mornings. They're going to do this, that, and and you know, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. They come in, they do it, and then they and then they bugger off again. And so that really spoke to us about how this and the other principle, which is never do for others what they can do for themselves. Um, and, and so there are plenty of people within our community, plenty of our parents and carers and, and, and other sort of like folks in the community, including many of our sixth form sixth formers who are perfectly capable of organizing campaigns and events and activities and programs and people. Um, and, and so pushing for that hopefully gets towards that kind of that universal offer with the with the, the larger uptake.
Mm, okay. Um, and so yesterday you were talking a bit about the work that this was inspired by. You were talking about the Harlem Children's Zone. Could you explain for people um, what that is? Yeah, so, so two, so probably more a, a program called Strive Together, actually. But but the Harlem Children's Zone, I think, is the one that people may have heard of because it was quite famous um, uh, sort of a initiative in, in the United States beginning, I think, way back in the 70s or 80s. Um, uh, uh, but but really sort of, um, I think, gained a lot of fame alongside the charter, the charter school movement um, and lots of sort of flagship charter schools and, and, the, and the KIPP sort of like school movement. Um, but but really a uh, a, a kind of so the Harlem Children's Zone, like the 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 initiative was not just aimed at we'll get we'll get a, we'll plonk a great school on the high street and then kids will get great schools. So so within that area of Harlem, I think that they, I think there was like zero percent progression rate to college, um, and, uh, and and um, so one one of the prominent sort of activists here is is a guy called Jeffrey Canada who who was talking about like guaranteeing a hundred percent progression uh, for to. To, to, to college within the community and making that sort of promise to the community and that, that for that to happen yes great schools were necessary but the whole the whole focus of the local community needed to change where everybody had in their mind what you know how do we set up this community so for, for children for children to flourish what other what other sort of services and organizations and people like do we need sort of like working towards this and, and similarly we strive together in a, a similar sort of model of trying to bring together folks who very often work in kind of silos, social workers, police, doctors, school leaders, um, youth workers, uh, and trying to encourage them to work more closely together in the best interests of the of, of the children. This is really tough work because I think, I think that often this is sort of like being tried and failed quite quite regularly because it becomes very complex because these professionals tend to be the most overstretched professionals um in in anywhere um you know social workers don't have they're not sitting back on a thursday afternoon thinking gosh how am i going to kill the rest of the day right they 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 already are overworked um, and have more cases than they can possibly sort of fit into a, 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 a working week. And the other thing is where lines of sort of responsibility come. So, so, so I think that previously, like with some of these initiatives, it sort of felt like rightly or wrongly, and, and the EHCP, like the educational healthcare plans, maybe are an example of this. Of, of that, although it's supposed to coordinate together different services, really what it means is that the school does everything. Uh, well, that's how it feels like anyway. Sort of accountability, sort of like sticks with the with the the school, and you kind of get maybe like unintended consequences of teachers becoming quasi quasi counsellors or quasi psychologists trying to diagnose sorts of things with kids that they're not qualified to to diagnose them. In. So it's, so it's tough work uh, and it's difficult, but, but I don't think that means like therefore you abandon <laughs> you abandon those ideas and, 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 and principles. And, and we do think that the school occupies a really unique position. So like in any community, the school occupies a really unique position in that the head teacher will be, uh, there'll be a big deal in that community like they they will be a, a person of a kind of a person of substance. They They, they will be widely sort of likely widely sort of respected within within that community and, and well known within that community if you're a head teacher and you and you and you 
send an email to your MP, you're going to get a different response to a member of uh, another constituent, likely. Um, so, so, so there's a kind of power there. You also, like, you have a building. It's something as simple as that. If you have a school, you have a building. Mm. You have a building in the community. You have facilities. Yeah, you also have within that building dozens of well-qualified, motivated, DBS-checked adults. You know all of the families and you get to know them really well. Kids have to go through it. So kids have to turn up every day. So you get to see the kids every day other than holidays. You're in a really unique position to coordinate and potentially offer, we think, a lot more than schools traditionally do. Um, and w so, so we think that, that actually, like, I'm not going to say that schools should be doing that, although maybe that's what I think, but we think that there's definitely an opportunity that that is actually attractive. So, so let's take the sort of like, let's take the normatives out of there. It could be that, and especially since pandemic, lots of head teachers, lots of schools are saying, do you know what? I got to know my community way better. I got to provide a broader kind of service for them. And I really liked it. I really liked like that kind of work and getting to know them and working not just on this sort of like, get them to do their reading homework, but more on sort of like, is there anything else I can do to, to help? Um, and so, yeah, it feels like there's a real opportunity there for, for schools to do lots of that work. And, and, and we're learning as much as possible from those models and from, from the States. And there are other, there are other places in, in England, like, um, Manchester Communication College, I think is one of them that they're already doing like some great work here. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Thank you. And so, so the, the, the I'm trying to want to get a sense of, of the difference between so there's the reach foundation there's the reach academy and there's reach foundation which is sort of overseeing this work and then there's a children's hub and the children's hub is the, the the bit that's sort of focused on early years but it's not the nursery it's sort of the more like outreach thing that's this universal offer to local parents and so what what is is that the main focus of the foundation's work or is the foundation's got like a broader remit so yeah so the foundations so that's you've described it correctly there is a nursery which is on so a nursery, a school, and a sixth form, which are all on the same site. Same, the nursery is a different building, but otherwise sort of the same building on Feltham High Street. And then the, the the children's hub originally was was housed, you know, when it was just a couple a couple of it was just May and and, and Catherine who who was one of our early years teachers, one of our reception teachers. Um, and and as the team sort of like grew and grew, um, uh, then. Then they, they now actually just this year have moved into new offices just across the literally opposite the opposite the school. But that the children's hub is is working especially on that work with the with the early years and, and we have um, a, a, an amazing specialist for um, anti, like giving antenatal classes. Used to work with a lady called Rebecca Lou used to work for NCT um, and um, that that's what that work is doing. But also some of the wider community work um with with parents um who are potentially feeling like quite socially isolated um or not and, and just want, want the opportunity to to feel more connected with folks in their community so running they run something called our house where they they basically have this this kind of house which has got like different different rooms and they have it i think every thursday and there's like a kitchen and there's like a bedroom and there's like and so they they set up the room so in one of the rooms there'll be like 
you know, presentation and sort of like a class on like a particular thing in the kitchen, you know, if the parents will come along, we'll sort of like cook together and they'll, they might cook a meal. Um, in the bathroom, they might be doing sort of classes on bathing children or whatever it is. And and it's our house in terms of they sort of take it over for, for that day. And people can drop in and out. They might just drop in for an hour to have a cup of coffee in the kitchen or um, to have a bit of food um, or they might spend all day there. Um, and so that's the work that the Children's Hub does. Um, and uh, um, uh, that is in connection with with the school but it's a broader community offer the foundation is much newer and and it's really around trying to um trying to help us to uh i i i think coordinate some of this work codify it to an extent although what we've learned is that it's really resistant to codification <laughs> um, and um and try and be outward facing in terms of partnering with other schools and trusts who may want to offer a similar thing. So we're, this year, since September, we've been working with school, six schools and trusts who are really committed to a kind of all through cradle to career approach to education, which goes broader than just academic qualifications and also takes into account wider sort of goals like uh, physical and emotional well-being, um, like uh, ensuring that you secure financial stability and security, um, like being healthy and happy, um, like uh, having strong sort of social networks and, and strong sort of like uh, supportive networks around you. Um, we think that what we're not saying is like this is what we did and so these are the steps you need to go through so you can do the same thing that reach did because we're very aware that it's going to be very very different in every community um and every school and every trust but we do think that there that's why that's why we think that that launching this as a partnership is really is going to be really helpful because it's going to be six schools trust seven including us who are who are committed to this work trying to work out sort of the principles of of, of what's what's really important and then realizing that in slightly different ways and having different examples and case studies of how it's realized slightly differently in different communities right and and um if there are people listening to this who are thinking that they're interested in finding out more i guess they can, we'll, we'll we'll talk later about how they can get in touch with you because it sounds like it would be something that you'd be able to point them in the right direction but obviously your resources are quite limited you're working with six schools at the moment and is it another six next year um, so you're sort of going to grow grow this sort of network of partners. Yeah, um, exactly. So there's there's a really good paper called "What's Your End Game," um, and and it was based on some of the work that was done uh, in terms of like social entrepreneurship and and social enterprises in the states. And it's around scale, actually, uh, around like how you scale something. And uh, this is where I've like had to learn a lot because the the, the obvious thing is like you've got a good idea and to scale like you hire a bigger team and you do like more transmission um you invite more people onto your courses you, you hire a bigger hall you go to more places you'll send more people to more places and the the the, the paper sort of says that's, that, that that's only one way to scale um, uh, and so they say, rather than thinking, how do I scale? You, you basically say, what's my end game? Um, and, and they they, sort of, they talk about one social enterprise, which uh, in America, where they wanted to eliminate homelessness um, in, in their community. And they did it like after a year or two, like they, they basically like, fu they functionally eliminated homelessness. And because they were successful, 
they they were offered like lots of money to to scale and so they bought bigger offices and they and they opened sort of like other regional offices sort of elsewhere and, and hired people to 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 run them and it's far less successful once they were doing that it felt like we're, we're scaling we're, we've got offices in different places around the states and we're, we're we, we used to have five employees and now we've got 75 employees but they weren't they didn't achieve the similar sort of thing that they, they achieved and they lost their kind of end game. The end game was, was to eliminate um, homelessness. Um, and the, the, there, yeah, there are various ways. Like what, one of them is just to like get really clear on what your model is and, and like give it away for, for free. Like just, just sort of like really clearly publish sort of like your model. One might be around sort of like training trainers. One might be around partnering with sort of organizations that are already offering similar work and can potentially add this. One might be direct delivery sort of like for yourself. And so we're, we're trying to be much more intentional and thoughtful about how we, about how we do that. And, and one of them, one of the ways seems to be partnering with, a small number of like really committed schools where there's really like big buy and, and, and schools that, and, and trusts that want to invest deeply in this and, and do this in, in, in the long term um, to increasingly sort of offer to the to the system a number of different like principles but also examples of, of how the work's taken on and, and that there will then be 12 people who you can email if like this is interesting to you 12 people that you can email to, to try and sort of learn from and maybe take like a bit from this school and a bit from that school and a bit from this trust and a bit from from that trust. That for us feels like, like a more sustainable place-based sort of change than scaling by us, like hiring, hiring more people for our central team and, and buying some bigger offices. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to look that up. Thanks. Um, what's your end game? I've got scaling up has been something that's on my mind a lot recently so um thank you for that um and just as a final question on this and then we'll move on to the next thing is about funding because obviously th there are funding implications for this school budgets have been squozen throughout 10 years or more of, of austerity um and so what's the funding model like this this doesn't come out of the school's budget does it so no, none of it comes out of the school's budget um and and in fact we're able to do some like activity which can potentially generate funds for the school um the so it will be different in different places there's not one there's not one clear sort of like funding model for this it's one of the things that people ask about like they want to do this work but how do you pay for it our, our experience is that it's not that hard to fundraise for like they tend to be grant like because you you are likely doing direct work with families and young people and you'll have a really credible team because you'll be staff in sort of in, in, in school that in terms of sort of like fundraising um it, it's not that it's not that hard a, a, a kind of a thing to, to to fundraise for. So we we received grants from, from from Save the Children and 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 from from other charitable organisations who 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 are able to provide grants for this kind of work. Um, it, it's also something that I think is probably quite attractive for for individuals. So 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 sort of like like broadening your like networking out in terms of like high sort of like high worth individuals and and and, and folks who um, may want to um may want to support a community to to have a deeper impact i think it because it, it, it's quite a tangible thing it's something that that it's 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 possibly easier to get funding from that respect it may also be that there's a possibility to get some local authority funding if you're able to offer something that the local authority wants to offer but, but but aren't able to for one reason or another so so it's a bit of like a i think it's a bit of a a, a, a bit of a pot di difference kind of pots from here there and everywhere 
the other thing is like we we kept really really lean for a really like long time and so we didn't start with we need to raise a million pounds to and then we'll do this stuff we we really tried to go on like a needs basis in terms of okay on the back of the listening campaign one of the things that we've identified is that a big thing the big issue that the community faces a big thing that 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 parents find hard is um that there is a, a real lack of high quality information around ba like baby development not not to one or first thousand and one days even like so then that gives us okay so what do we need to to kind of like address that and and we might say well what we need is we need to hire one one specialist in in this respect rather than saying we want to do some great work in the community so we need to hire a team of like five people um and then and then they'll do some work so sort of beginning with that kind of like need basis and that's allowed us i think to stay like quite lean as well so that actually it, it's been able to run like pretty cheaply um so it will be different for different people i, I think that our that, that our advice would be like don't worry too much about like what it looks like in terms of in five years time like just do the first thing so what's the first thing you need to do it might be just hiring sort of like somebody who can do that community listening campaign and just like just commissioning that might be step one you don't need a building for that it can be a sort of a limited contract it can be you know it can be part-time so like that's that's kind of step one and, and and then what that gives you is oh actually now we kind of have a proof of concept in terms of if we go out for for future fundraising we now have some like a base of this that we've spoken to our community our community has spoken to us this is what they've said we think that we need to offer this on the back of that um so yeah staying lean and being agile that's the key okay we're going to move on to uh, to what did you call it before the axiology bit, the, uh, yeah. the the is that about values or something? I'm trying to remember what axiology is about. It's about you, the the you bit. Um, so so I'm interested to hear about you and the and your own experience of education because that's often quite illuminating. It's not always, um, but it sometimes is. <laughs> um, and also, I'm interested in this idea of significant learning. This idea of like key moments that have sort of really shaped your thinking or your the, the, the shape of your life in some way. Um, so take us back to the beginning. What was your experience of school like? Yes, yeah, so a good question. So I really enjoy primary school. Um, so I'm one of five kids. Uh, so I've got three brothers and a sister and I'm the middle uh, between them. Um, and I love primary school. Um, I loved learning. Learning like came quite easily to me, and um, and and so just really enjoyed school and 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 was very very curious. Um, and then I increasingly hated. I didn't enjoy secondary school at all. Um, I don't really know why, but I was I was um, I was not a good student. And, Do you know, it um, seems, sorry to interrupt. It seems very common. I, th I remember seeing like somebody on Twitter recently saying like, who had a bad time at school, uh, who's a teacher. And it was like, hundreds of people were going, yeah, like, it seems to, it seems to be a common trope that's it's like slaying your demons sort of thing that lots of people want to go back to the place that burned them to see if they can set it straight or something. 
Yeah, although it was much more me than the school. I, I can't really <laughs> complain about the secondary school. It, I mean, I, I don't think it was a great secondary school, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't terrible. I was. I was kind of smart enough that I could coast along and get okay grades, even being a a, a, a bit of a pain. And so I think that one of the things with like the the big schools is I I think that I, in in the grand scheme of things, that school I was probably never like really a priority because I was never at risk of sort of like failing my GCSEs. And I don't think it massively mattered to the school whether I got A stars or A's or B's, like it was gonna be in that sort of ballpark. And so that meant that I, like I have some regrets about like not pushing myself harder at that point. But but I think it was, like I said, I think it was probably more, it, it came more from me. Um, so yeah that was that was kind of school for me um do you have any insight as to why that was what do you think was the your problem with it i don't know like i had some stuff going on at, at, at home so that my parents split up about sort of like i think i was about 12 or 13 it was a bit of a prolonged period obviously so 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 that probably didn't help and then mum mum was um mum who was a primary school teacher herself and she was amazing um and, and, and is, is amazing and i think that that was a real safety net for me in terms of there was always that real value uh, uh, sort of at home around learning and and, and helping me to uh, sort of like be pushed in, in in that respect and just very aware that like not everybody has that safety net um and so i guess to to speak to to speak to your point of how does this influence your your sort of like key learning points sort of really keeping i sort of think i think that i really want to keep in mind like who who isn't there a, who doesn't have safety nets and schools schools should like I think that school should be set up with with those children in, in mind. So in terms of sort of affluence or advantage or disadvantage, I often sort of conceive of it in terms of the the, the more advantages you have, as in the more, and, the, and that can be in a number of ways um, uh, that you can have particular advantages. Um, you, it's just like more safety nets. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it it doesn't matter so much if you fail in this particular respect. If you fail your GCSEs, it's not so much of a big deal. If you do badly in your degree, it's not so much of a big deal. Like it might be that you can get a job in your one of your parents' businesses, or it might be that they'll give you a deposit on your house so you'll still be able to get on the housing ladder. Or it might be that you can just go back and live at home for for a chunk of your 20s so it doesn't matter if you can't afford to pay rent. The, the less, I think, especially the less material wealth that you have, the fewer of those safety nets exist. So it really, really matters um, whether or not you get the sort of GCSEs that allow you to get a job or progress on to the, the, the next stage. And so I, I spoke about this, like this, I guess this was my like down the scene moment in terms of the, um, in terms of like curriculum in, in, in primary school, which, which, which I kind of wrote about, um, at, at, at the time, uh, and seems to have resonated with people in terms of my transition from an activity based curriculum offer for kids to a knowledge based curriculum offer. Uh, and, and I think that that was around the what I came to realize is that the the activity what I call the activity based offer for curriculum is where I was thinking about a topic that I was going to be teaching the kids that could be the Romans or the Stone Age or um, mountains and volcanoes and I was beginning by 
thinking about the activities that the kids would do in the class um and, and was i think encouraged to do that and and you know if you if you in fact if you open up google images and google elementary school or primary school romans like you will find lots and lots of paper mache you'll find lots of arts and crafts um like that is what you are i think encouraged and pushed to 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 sort of like do and like for for a couple of years i thought it was great because you get really good feedback from it and this this speaks to the point that we were making earlier on about kind of like I don't think like are the kids really enjoying it and are, are the kids really happy as the it might be part of it I don't think it's the ultimate arbiter because I think what was happening is that the kids were really enjoying it meanwhile knowing almost nothing about the Romans and moving along to the next year group and actually you know especially in primary school there's no real assessment of the foundation subjects or from between year two and year six they can sort of toot along and I think great I did a great job there I did some really great history teaching and it's not actually until they get to years down the line that they start to feel the effects of just cumulatively no <laughs> so it's a weird phrase but like having cumulatively having no knowledge sort of like of of the particular topic no substantive knowledge of a sort of like historical periods which means that you can't really build conceptual knowledge because conceptual knowledge is kind of built up of substantive knowledge and so I, I think that that for me was was hard because it, it made me realize that I I kind of you know I did teach I did teach first and, and was a true believer and still am of the of the sort of eliminating educational disadvantage and that school being an engine of social mobility and realized that that I was I was probably actually widening the achievement gap um, by taking that kind of approach because nobody in my classroom got a really sort of like good offer in terms of knowing a ton of stuff about the Romans. Um, but there were some kids that got that anyway, because they went home and their parents would talk to them about Julius Caesar and they talked to them about crossing the Rubicon and they talked to them about how it, the, the, the Romans moved from a Republic to an empire and how they sacked Carthage and the, the, the Punic Wars more generally and the, the way that they organized their, their army and empire um, and uh, the, the reason for the decline and collapse of that. They go home and they get all of that. They get that from parents talking to them or taking them to museums or finding good sort of like storybooks and picture books or or, or, or encyclopedias or like they, they would get that. And so what I was essentially doing was my approach was essentially to assume hope that the kids would be taught the stuff at home. And we'll have a great time in, in school and we'll have lots of fun and it will be really exciting and engaging. And then hopefully the parents will do the actual teaching at home. Um, and that's obviously like the who 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 gets that? The most affluent kids, the kids that, that sort of like need, need that the most because they're already sort of predetermined to, to, to find school the easiest and be most likely to go on to, to do great things. And so for, that's when I started, I think, to change to like, I'm not going to set my classroom up with those sort of like most affluent kids in mind. I'm going to set it up with this assumption of if they don't learn it in my classroom, they're not going to learn it at all. If they don't learn it in school, they're not. And that then was the spur for, for lots of the sort of curriculum thinking that I've been doing over the last 10 years, because that then the imperative of the curriculum thinking is, well, what 
what what are we going to offer them then? What's the gauntlet we throw down to ourselves in terms of what what are these pupils like? What's the entitlement of all of these pupils? What's necessary for them to master a particular subject in terms of building increasingly sophisticated conceptual understanding? So uh, that could be around you know uh, in terms of art, what what do they need to be a great artist um, and backwards planning from a level like thinking about what do they need to get an a star art but 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 more broadly than that it'll help us to think well it, they need to understand different mediums so one of the things we'll need to make sure within our curriculum on a really broad level is that they have a chance to engage in different in different mediums they'll, they'll also need to understand um that like a more micro level of like the different sort of like shading techniques um and, and then we can like start to sequence that in terms of okay so imagining that if they don't get it here they won't get it anywhere else what do we need to guarantee and in what order should we sort of give that to them and and then we we have ensured that there's that minimum entitlement that we've offered to kids and it means that they don't have to rely on sort of like going go learning it from 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 home um so yeah i think that that was a big shift for me that was a big change thinking about starting to to think about curriculum in, in that way as an offer and as a guarantee um uh, mm. uh and lots of people have been on that journey. You were, you were in. You, I heard you saying on the other, the, the uh, another podcast that you were into curriculum before it was cool. <laughs> but like, so, this, but this was it. Yeah. So this was a big moment for you. Do you remember what the what the um, the impetus was for that for that Damascene conversion? Was it something that you read? Was it a conversation? I think that there was a couple of things. So it, yeah, it was it was it was about we got we managed to get a little bit of a head start because this is probably about it was probably about 2014 2015 and it wasn't immediate and 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 it was sort of like um, as I moved to reach what had the like luckily Ed is just it's a really cool place in terms of being really open minded and 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 having a culture of sort of saying yes um, and so Ed was really encouraging of of sort of like let's let's play around with some different ideas then um and that started with sort of like a like first of all like getting some knowledge organizers in in, in into primary and you know first of all just in a couple of subjects in a couple of classrooms and and it's kind of swelled and grown since then and, and now we feel like we have a pretty comprehensive offer but for me personally it was so it was two things one was reading more around so 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 uh, uh, the first book was cultural literacy by ed hirsch um which will be familiar i think to probably most of your listeners yeah. around um the so i think that quite often people have heard the ideas of hirsch i don't know how often like it, like reading cultural literacy and ignoring the list the list at the back is obviously a bit silly but ignoring the list at the back that's and the just thing like, of like five thousand things that every literate american should know or something it's just like it's, it's quite a weird list isn't it it's like phrases um objects people it's quite a, it seems quite arbitrary as you read it yeah it starts with like the alamo um <laughs> it's like quite dated already i think um but but it but you know so hirsch is now known as kind of like gibbon goves sort of like uh svengali but if he started like most of his career has been around re reading comprehension um and, and around what determines sort of like reading con comprehension and 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 then sort of like more broadly out of that in terms of comprehension of, of kind of just like cultural interactions more more generally and how there is whenever you read anything 
the writer makes an assumption of background knowledge. They have to, otherwise any, everything that you read would be so painful mm. because you'd have to constantly define everything. Um, and so they, they, they make certain like uh, assumptions, but also we do that just in general interactions. And if you don't have that background knowledge, you're excluded from that text that you're reading, like it won't make any sense to you, but more broadly, like culturally, you're excluded from chunks of sort of like society and, 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 and your culture because you don't, um, possess that background knowledge, and his argument is that um, it, although you, you, although you can and should debate like what what that should what should be on that list, to, to an extent it's kind of fixed because it's it's kind of an just an inter like a, a implicit tacit interpersonal sort of agreement of it is just what most people know, um, and schools are in a position where we can pretty much sort of like give all kids that or not and if we don't then some kids are going to find life really tough and be really confused and find learning much harder because knowledge begets knowledge the more you know about something the easier it is to learn about it so i was kind of set off on on that and then also a conversation that i had with a guy called chris bolton um who was he now works at uplearn uh, but he was previously a, a maths teacher taught at king solomon academy and he, um, I, it was one of the first times that I met him. I was, I think, it was at a Teach First conference, or maybe even like, um, uh, he, he, sort of like a drinks. Um, he, he said to me, um, uh, "What, what do you teach?" And I, and I, 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 you know, I've only been teaching about a year or something. I used this line that one of my uni PGC tutors had, had, had sort of said to me, which I loved at the time and thought it was really smart because I said, I'm a, "I'm a primary teacher." We don't teach subjects, we teach children. Um, <laughs> to which he he paused for a minute and then he replied, well, obviously you're teaching children, but what are you teaching them? <laughs> um, and, and that kind of made me think, oh, yeah, we're all teaching children. What am I teaching them? <laughs> and there's a kind of actually, I guess there is kind of an obligation on me to to be clear on that and and the like the honest answer was that that often i wasn't and it's tough for primary teachers especially where you know you're teaching 10 11 12 national curriculum subjects and and expected all of a sudden to to gain subject knowledge in you know um embedding subordinate clauses in the morning and uh, the the potential theories for the decline of the mind civilization in the in the afternoon like it's a it's a tough ask um mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that uh, and i think that that that's another reason that in some cases we think well let's just make ziggurats out of su sugar cubes instead like no pre-reading necessary um uh, but 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 what happens is it maybe it's a harsh characterization, but I think that there's like more than a grain of truth in it. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that this this work has been um, this this sort of work has sort of captured people's interest and 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 has been um, and has been like popular in terms of people starting to go along, as you say, go along this sort of like journey. Because yeah. then what you find is actually the mind civilization. It's fascinating in its own right. You don't have to make sugar cube cigarettes. Maybe you do. Maybe you do as well. Like fine. I'm not saying never make a sugar cube cigarette, but but the actual mind civilization is fascinating in its own right. Um, and, and, and we shouldn't have to apologize or excuse or divert or distract from that. Like it should be the content of, a, of the thing itself that's important. And, and then that means you need to do some work on what is it, what is, what is it then? Um, and, and, and hundred percent, maybe I'm wrong on, on, on what we've decided that is, and that can be an ongoing conversation. And, 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 and so oh, the, the work of Michael Young is probably more, 
um, uh, helpful than than Hirsch's here in, in terms of the dynamic nature of that sort of knowledge and, and, and the fact that it can should be sort of like revised and, and added and removed uh, to within particular disciplines. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that they, that was kind of the big moment, I guess, for me. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? And and both Hirsch and Jung, I had Michael Jung on the podcast a little while ago, and both of them are, are of the left. Hirsch has described himself as practically a socialist. And so although they were, like, as you say, they were sort of co-opted by, by Gove and Gibb when they did the big curriculum review, um, but it was about 2013, I think, when that was happening, wasn't it? Um, you know, there's this, there's this trope that goes around online, isn't it? Lefty trad, right? That, that lots of the people who are really interested in this stuff in curriculum and knowledge and sequencing knowledge and taking it really seriously, consider themselves to be of the left politically um, and that this is something that should be the birthright of every kid and not just kids who go to, you know, leafy private schools. Um, is that something that you would you would identify with that label of lefty trad? I, so I, I kind of just really hate the traditional progressive sort of like labeling full stop. Because I just think it's really unhelpfully divisive, and I think that there are some people like yourself who can sort of kind of take it in good humour, but I think that there's enough poison on social media that it does more harm than good. Um, and so, even knowledge like knowledge rich, I kind of like cringe when I say knowledge rich because it's just so unhelpfully politicised um, that I think again it can do sort of like more harm than it's good. And that's why I quite often now talk about sort of like sequencing and like curriculum sequencing and, and sort of like content curation because they're just more neutral terms and they get to the same sort of thing like you can be more or less intentional in terms of the way that you create curate the content for your curriculum mm -hmm. you can be more or less intentional in terms of the way that you that you sequence them uh, I, I think that it was disappointing to me so so that was about the time i started training teaching in 2013 uh, about the time the, the curriculum sort of like reforms and I remember going in 2013 to a policy exchange event with it was uh, so it was Michael Gove was the education secretary um, and it was Tristram Hunt who was the shadow education secretary at that time. Yeah. And, and I don't know maybe you were there. Um, they 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 both gave speeches um, and Tom Bennett was kind of like emceeing it as I remember and I remember him saying it finishing and him saying well there you go folks. Labour and the Conservative Party, and barely a cigarette paper between them, um, and, and I think that it was it was true. Um, and and one of the things that was was disappointing to me personally, as somebody who would describe myself as 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 of of the left, although probably more like a a kind of a a centrist dad these days, perhaps. Um, the and and like like lots of people, largely being sort of politically homeless. But 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 in ten, terms of general views, sort of like uh, of 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 the left, it was disappointing to me that it seemed like the Conservative Party had all the best arguments about social mobility and like off like a, a, a proper offer in terms of like education for for pupils of all backgrounds. And, and I remember writing a piece. So I wrote a piece for Labour teachers in 20, 2014 oh, or 2015. I remember that now. God, that's a blast from the past. I remember reading it. Go on. So it was called How Labour Lost the Argument on Education. Um, and, and it was and it was basically setting out ex exactly this. Um, so it was around how there was a there was a guy who I won't name who who took up a post as like a teacher in residence for the for um, for, for the Department for Education. And the Secretary of State for Education, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Lucy Powell, some, I can't remember, anyway, sorry, the Shadow Secretary of State for Education, 
called, like immediately called a called for a select committee to like get this like cancelled because they said that this was a you know this was a Tory stooge who was being uh, put in place in the DfE as the speechwriter for Nick Gibb. And I actually knew this chap and knew that he was he was a card carrying member of the Labour Party until like until sort of like he, uh, until basically started teaching. And my question was like, how do how how has Labour lost people like this? Because they should be at the vanguard of like the Labour vision around that you know Labour have may Labour have the best offer for these kids. And, and in fact, I think that lots of people of the left, and this is where the lefty trad thing comes in, uh, begrudgingly acknowledging that the Conservatives have the the the, the kind of the the equity are becoming the champions of the champions of the disadvantaged in the in the school system and demanding similar levels of sort of like academic academic sort of like uh, offer and, and and rigor in terms of education that the people in private schools in, in, enjoy which is at times left labor with with like little choice but to say things like they want to abolish exams and they want more project work and 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 they um and, and it just sort of makes them feel like apologists for apologists for sort of like high standards and i think that they sort of can paint themselves into that corner because that sort of feels like the the the, the obvious opposition sort of thing to say and we've spoken about exams and and, and sort of like reservations with those I, I'm, I'm still of the opinion that i think that they're the least worst option um uh, that the grading system notwithstanding like terminal examinations are probably the least worst option currently um that's not to say that, that i'll always be of that opinion but i think that we've seen over the last few years like that teacher assessment is is no solution to this uh, and, and probably presents more well, it does present more problems than it solves, certainly in terms of killing teachers' workloads, certainly in terms of seeing levels of grade inflation that become very, very difficult to justify, certainly in terms of that grade inflation being more um, heavily concentrated in already affluent and advantaged areas, schools, um, uh, particular pupil groups. Um, you don't have to love exams to see those problems. Um, and. Uh, so yeah, so so I think like politically, like I wouldn't call it like a political awakening, and I, and I wouldn't say that like it, it made me run to go and vote for the Conservatives at a general election, but it but it was disappointing that it did seem that they had the and and that for me is just like being being kind of like a, a grown up, like you you can disagree with the party more broadly and say that this policy is still like the the right policy, and I, I've got no like. I have very little time for people who basically say because Nick Gibb is saying it, therefore it's wrong because, because he's a conservative. Like that to me just feels so intellectually immature um, that it's it's almost not worth engaging with. Like you engage with the ideas and not with the and, and, and not with the person. You engage with the arguments and not with the. Of course, and with back back where we started with Aristotle and being able to engage uh, with with ideas from multiple perspectives, the world is more interesting when you look at it like that. And like you say, when you when you broaden your reading um, and you start to read people who with whom you imagine you disagree, you often find that you you have much more in common. Um, so thank you for that. I, I realize it was a slightly annoying question, but I'm glad I answered asked it because the answer was was brilliant. Right, we have three minutes left. I have a hard deadline because it's half term and we're going to the zoo so um it's a quick quick fire round three questions you can have one one choice for each what's really good what's the big problem and how are you going to fix that so positives first what do you think is really good that we're getting right currently system level so at a system level i think that there is incredible engagement with 
um, evidence around really great instructional practices and how pupils learn. Um, I think that we're having, uh, as Matt Hood would say, like we're having the best conversation in like in England. We're having the best conversation about education now. There there are debates, and you do an amazing job at sort of like on on your podcast of like marshalling the different like the different opinions. But I think nobody can de deny that we are like really in quite a widespread system wide way having a debate that is based on on evidence and um the interpretation the application of that evidence i think that people like differ in fine that's good and that's healthy but i think we're having a really really good debate and it feels very professionalizing and it feels like in all cases kids are getting a much better deal as a result of it yeah, absolutely endorse everything that you just said. I agree completely. Okay, uh, what's the major challenge that you see currently? So um, I think that the major challenge, so I've, I've undenied about like what I answered to this. Um, there, there are quite sort of like, I think that there are quite specific, time-specific sort of challenges at, uh, at the moment um, uh, around the pandemic and, and around sort of like staffing and recruitment and, and, and things. However, I, I still, and, and again, at risk of having my um, Trad Cabal membership revoked, I think that the, the secondary terminal examination system, I think that it's not beyond the wit of man for us to create something better than that, that doesn't mean that we systematically fail a third of kids in things that they really, really, really need for the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of really interesting work going on around this, isn't there? Rethinking assessment are starting to report and the, the Fed thing and the, the Times Education Commission. Lots of people are looking at this. And, and that, so, that, so that leads on to the third, the third question, which is maybe the hardest one, because you said earlier that it's at the moment it's the, the sort of the least bad thing. But what do you what do you see is like what would be the likely solutions to that problem? Do you think what would be fertile ground to to plow? So, so, so not what's being suggested by the Times Education Commission. I, I think um, the the real risk with this is that you go like that. We've already we've already trodden this ground. That so so the 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 risk with saying I'm I'm uncomfortable with like the grading system or terminal examinations is that the what you then offer is something worse. So what you then offer is something like coursework and projects. Um, and generally speaking, like in terms of an, an assessment system and, and the purposes of assessment are obviously important. Um, one of my kind of key criteria is how easily would this be gained by affluent families? I think like we really need to keep people don't take that seriously enough. One of your key criteria with any assessment system is how easily can advantaged families game this system? And the answer with coursework is extremely easily. And so therefore, like that is not a viable alternative from from my perspective, if you're interested in sort of social mobility and trying to counteract the kind of accidents of, of, of birth. So what would a solution be? Uh, so I think that there's real legs in something like adaptive testing. And I think from a motivational perspective and from a richer data perspective and a convenience perspective, I think that, 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 that this is um, my, if I was, so, so if I was, um, if I was advising labor, for example, in terms of what can your angle be around sort of a, a real sort of like compelling offer for, for education, I think I'd be looking really hard and, and thinking really hard about this. 
So just this is adaptive testing. Is that not just like AI building up a database about what you know and don't don't know and giving you extra questions to sort of to stretch you? Is that what you mean by adaptive testing? Yeah, exactly. So by adaptive, so so by adaptive testing, I mean um, uh, th there would be a bank of questions of of different sort of difficulty, and the test adapts to your right and wrong answers. Now, now, now there is can that, be adaptive. But is that not more of a formative thing rather than a summative thing? Is that not designed to help you to to target the areas that you don't know yet, rather than being not, a, a measure of your learning? So not necessarily. It can be applied in that way, I think. But but it but um, the uh, the the SATs, I think, now use an adaptive sort of technique. What it means is, if you sit down, let's say you find biology really hard yes there's a foundation in secondary and, and, and a higher tier paper but it may be that you sit down with a foundation paper and uh, you get like one question right and you know that you're only getting one question right and you might have done that you know you might have first been given that paper in year nine as kind of like a mock and and it just makes you think and from a motivation perspective i think you just think what is the point I've just sat down for an hour and got one correct. I'm, I'm stupid. I'm no good at this. I hate biology. Whereas adaptive testing would be, you can, I think you can do it summatively. Sort of like minds, minds your mind, if you like, for what you do know about biology and comes up with a score for that. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, like so, <laughs> so you and I would get the same, roughly the same number of questions, correct and incorrect, but the, the database could just say, you know, James was answering much tougher questions than John. And so he is at a higher level, but we still had a similar experience in terms of, I feel like I'm being successful. And I know uh, from a self-efficacy perspective, I still feel like I, 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 I can do bits of, of this. Um, I, I, it does have the advantage of, you know, you can also have it on, it can tie quite nicely to then curriculum uh, in the way that like Duolingo or whatever sort of like knows what you got right and got wrong and can test you on that again and potentially push you in particular ways. But but for me, it would be as a as a as a kind of, um, as I say, as a kind of on, ongoing um, assessment and, and, and feeding that into our kind of like minimum sort of like minimum viable or like um, absolute sort of like floor standard numeracy. It could be that you can take that sort of adaptive test at basically at any point that you want to. And, and you know, you probably have to control conditions and things like that, but you can take it basically whenever you want to. And it, and at some point it would say to you, yep, you're good. Like you, you've, you've done it. Um, uh, and and that, that everybody needs to get that. You're good. You've done it. And it might be then yeah. for some kids, you are kind of hot housing them for the last three, three months of, of, uh, year 11. Um, but, but that wouldn't be a kind of, uh, you're not doing that with absolutely every single child on a grade three, four boundary and every single child on sort of like an eight, nine boundary. Mm. How interesting. I haven't really given much thought to that before. What a lovely note to end on. Um, I've overrun my self-imposed time limit. I'm, I'm at risk of becoming lion food uh, at the moment. So, so we'll have to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I knew it would be a good idea to have you on. I think we generated more light than heat, but we'll let the listeners decide that. <laughs> um, <laughs> just in case anyone wants to get hold of you to find out more about this idea of the Children's Hub and this outreach type work uh where can people find you yeah so um the the reach uh the cradle of career work and uh, and our foundation is uh, uh on, on a website which is reach hyphen c2c the number two reach hyphen c2c.org um uh, is it dot uk no just dot org um and uh i tweet at 
John underscore Hutchinson underscore. Um, so folks can find me there if they'd like to. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'll let you get on with the with the rest of your day. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed it, James. Thanks so much. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.